Welcome back. Before I start this episode, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's been listening. Today's the six month anniversary of the day I launched the show, and it's done better than I dared hope when I started. So I just really appreciate each one of you who's listened and reached out in the first few months. It's just been really motivating and helpful. So thank you. And on to the episode. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. When Henry Vane told the magistrates that his stepping down as governor wasn't because of urgent business in England, but instead it was because he was worried about the impending public disaster, it changed the court's decision to allow his resignation. The deputies said that they didn't feel bound to let him go if his motivation was simply getting himself out of a sticky political situation. And quite a few of them agreed with his position, and they certainly didn't want their standard bearer to leave. As they began to refuse his request, Vane took back his teary statement, saying that he'd just gotten emotional, had just lost his judgment, and that he did, in fact, need to go home to take care of his estate. Magistrates were still split on the issue, but the final decision was cemented when Boston church members sent a committee to insist that Vane not be permitted to leave. Vane said he was an obedient child of the church and that he wouldn't leave without the church's permission. He would remain governor until his term was up. And after that little bit of drama, they voted on whether or not to proceed with the new election and decided to defer the election until the regular time in May. Some people felt that Vane's vacillation had been a form of manipulation. And the status quo of the largely unpopular party remaining in power had been maintained. But the non-opinionists now had a few months to prepare for the next election. The political leaders of that party met with Winthrop, while Wilson, Weld, and Peters led a group of clergy to confront Cotton directly. They knew that Cotton's refusal to distance himself from the opinionist cause had been its primary source of strength and legitimacy. When they confronted Cotton, Peter's group presented him with a list of all the specific ways in which the opinionists had said that Cotton differed from them and asked him to tell them point by point whether or not he agreed with it. And Cotton agreed to do this. At the end of December, the ministers and court came together to officially discuss the situation, and the discussion devolved into pretty much the type of bickering that had become standard at this point, with Peters and Weld leading the charge against Vane and Cotton. At one point, however, after a sarcastic remark from Vane about private meetings among ministers, Peters accused Vane of seeking to restrain the liberty of the clergy. Vane quickly backed down, but Peters continued the attack, saying that until Vane came less than two years before, the now troubled churches had been at peace. 
when Vane replied that the light of the gospel brings a sword. Peters told him to consider his youth and short experience in the things of God and to avoid being too rigid in his decisions, which he seemed to tend to be. All of the colony's new opinions and divisions could be tied back to Vane, Peters said, and he wasn't exactly wrong. Peters' rant about liberty and an overly rigid leader, though, hearkened back to problems at home, and from this point on, the conflict took on more and more similarities to the fight between Laud and the Puritans, or King Charles and the Puritans. By leaving England, the Puritans had only removed opposing voices. They hadn't come with well-formed ideas of liberty. They just had the notion that they wanted to run a society as they saw fit. Now, as the colony faced internal division, those same arguments, tyranny, division, unity, and troublemaking dissenters, were beginning to reemerge. A couple days later, the group of ministers summoned Hutchinson to a meeting to debate her directly. Peters again was the spokesman of the meeting. He immediately demanded to know why she thought that he and his allies were so different from Cotton, and why she so openly asserted that they taught a covenant of works. Peters was intimidating, and much like Vane, Hutchinson was shocked, and initially started to deny the allegations. But again, Peters simply pushed harder. And soon, Hutchinson regained her composure and started to fight back. She doubled down on every opinion and said that the fact that the other ministers couldn't see the difference meant that they were no more able ministers of the gospel than the disciples had been before the resurrection of Christ. When Cotton grew uncomfortable and objected to the comparison, she insisted. And then she started to point at individual ministers like Shepherd of Newtown and Weld of Roxbury criticizing them individually. Phillips of Waterton chimed in, knowing that she had never seen him preach, and asking in what ways his ministry differed from Cotton's, to which she replied that he wasn't sealed either. The group then began interrogating Cotton, who had criticized Wilson for teaching sanctifying methods which were severely exacting, in other words, a covenant of works, while he taught self-assuring heart piety, in other words, a covenant of grace. Cotton answered their questions, but they weren't satisfied with his answers, and as the interrogation got more intense, he threw up his hands and said, Let Calvin answer for me. That was the end of the year, and the end of civil attempts to resolve the crisis. As 1637 began, people were actively hostile to each other. Members of the Boston Church started to disturb other churches, objecting to their doctrines and publicly challenging their ministers. Peters criticized the double seal that the Bostonians seemed to embrace, and meanwhile the Bostonians were furious at the outcome of the debate and were particularly angry with Wilson, 
who seemed to have criticized the entire body of his church, including John Cotton. The crisis by this point had become in many ways as hotly contested as the division between Protestants and Catholics in Europe. When Wilson returned, the Boston church demanded that he explain the statements he made before the court in public. In his explanation, Wilson said he hadn't intended to reflect on the Boston church as a whole. His only statements had been targeted at Vane and Hutchinson, who were members of his church. His statements weren't about all of them, just some of them in particular. This wasn't a satisfactory answer, because it didn't seem particularly true, and even if it was his intended meaning, most of the church agreed with his stated targets, so they had been indirectly criticized anyway. So Boston prepared to condemn Wilson publicly. He was arraigned in February, with Vane aggressively leading the attack. At the arraignment, Winthrop was one of only two to three people to defend Wilson, and he reflected later how weird it was that ordinary people with no real legal or theological understanding of the issues had been so eager to jump on the bandwagon, not only condemning Wilson, who they'd known for years, but doing so with such vitriol. And as for Wilson, he was pretty much helpless. At the arraignment, he sat quietly answering accusations as well as he could, but knowing that no one would listen to him anyway. The majority of people wanted to immediately pass a vote of censure, and it was in fact Cotton who prevented that. Cotton explained that the rules of the Boston church required a vote of censure to be unanimous, and that there were two to three people who clearly disagreed with the majority. Cotton wasn't on Wilson's side, though, and immediately after stopping the vote of censure, he turned to Wilson and chastised him in front of the entire congregation, something which was deeply humiliating and completely unheard of. But what could Wilson do? He stood quietly and listened to Cotton's every word. After the arraignment, Wilson stayed quietly in the background of the church, doing his duties without drawing attention to himself. But Winthrop was furious about the event. He spent the next month in a heated, written debate with Cotton about Wilson and the Opinionists. And at the same time, differences among the Opinionists themselves were starting to emerge. They may have all opposed Wilson's preparation theology, but Wheelwright in particular was uncomfortable with some of the statements emerging from his supporters. Hutchinson's spiritual revelations were increasingly unbiblical, and neither Vane nor Wheelwright were fully comfortable with them. Others were putting forth even more radical opinions, like the idea that faith wasn't important for salvation, and denying the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. Neither of those things was in the Bible. In fact, both of those things went directly against multiple things that were said in the Bible. And people simply claimed 
that these were things that God had directly revealed to them. The movement was beginning to look crazy, and there was definitely a difference between its members. This didn't have any real practical consequences, but it's an important aspect of the controversy to mention. The opinionists were united on a few core convictions, but as so frequently happens in situations like this, there were people who went much, much farther than the majority agreed with, and some people who were just following along, while some wanted to remain much more moderate than the rest of the group. Perhaps the biggest problem was that Hutchinson herself didn't shy away from even the most extreme opinions. It soon became clear that her belief in personal revelations superseded her belief in the Bible, and this was a conviction which would ultimately lead to the downfall of the antinomian cause in New England. By the end of January, the Pequot War was looming, the Thirty Years' War was going terribly for the Protestants, and the situation in England was looking no better for the Puritans. So the Massachusetts Bay Colony held a fast day to pray for an end to the increasing troubles. Cotton, of course, presided over Boston services that day, and Wheelwright was there too. In fact, after Cotton spoke, he called Wheelwright to the pulpit to speak as a private to speak as a private citizen, and perhaps unsurprisingly, both sermons were full of veiled criticisms of Wilson. Wheelwright's sermon in particular went much further than Cotton's, and it completely focused on the importance of the free grace theology. In fact, Wheelwright's speech was so extreme that it attracted the attention of surrounding towns, and the clergy called for another meeting with Cotton. Here, they presented him with another list of 16 points of contention and asked him to explain his position on each one. And this time, they weren't convinced of his explanations. The clergy also decided to cease preaching for the next three weeks so that they could focus all their attention on the quarterly general court meeting. A few weeks later was the first general court meeting of the year, and the ministers attended as an advisory council. But while the non-Boston ministers were united in their condemnation of the opinionists, the court was much more divided. Vane was the governor, which gave the opinionists both political strength and political credibility, and even more importantly, court sessions took place in Boston. It was on the opinionists' home turf. They could send more people to vote in the elections, and they could send more people to demonstrate at court sessions. Politically, the court had to proceed with caution. The vast majority of Massachusetts settlers opposed the opinionists, but the anti-opinionists, the clerical party. Step one was to test their strength. 
So the clerical party summoned a man named Stephen Greensmith, who had said that Cotton Wheelwright and possibly Hooker were the colony's only ministers who were not under a covenant of works. And the court fined him 40 pounds with 100 pounds surety. They also unsuccessfully tried to get evidence they could use to convict Wheelwright. But still, they had convicted somebody against Vane's wishes, and this meant that they could move on to more aggressive actions, specifically reviewing the Boston church's arraignment of Wilson. The court ruled that no member of the court and no person speaking at the court's request could be publicly questioned elsewhere for something said to the court. So the Boston church's actions were ruled illegal, and Wilson was invited to speak before the assembly. In his speech, Wilson made pointed criticisms of Vane individually, and the court granted its enthusiastic approval. Then they summoned Wheelwright, and they produced a verbatim transcript of his fast day sermon. They were preparing to use the document to support accusations of sedition. Unbeknownst to Wheelwright, somebody had been sitting in the Boston church that day, recording every word that he had spoken. And now, in a generally favorable environment in front of the general court, the clerical party produced them without warning and asked Wheelwright to admit that this was in fact what he had said. Wheelwright didn't directly answer their question, and instead he gave them his own manuscript of the event. So the court adjourned for the rest of the day as the magistrates read his transcript. Less than a day later, when the court summoned Wheelwright again, the Boston Church sent a petition signed by nearly every one of its members demanding that the case, the Boston Church sent a petition signed by nearly every one of its members demanding the case and all future judicial proceedings be conducted publicly and to leave all matters of conscience to the church alone. The court dismissed the petition, calling it presumptuous, and proceeded to interrogate Wheelwright ex officio, meaning under oath. Having a court privately prosecute a clergyman for differences of religious opinion sounded a lot like the star chamber that Puritans had been fighting for generations. In fact, opposition to the star chamber had been at the very core of Puritan opposition to royal prerogative and the Church of England. Laud's increase of use of the Star Chamber against Puritans had been one of the biggest complaints against King Charles, and one of the biggest reasons cited in accusations of persecution. The court's actions were not going to go unnoticed or unchallenged in Massachusetts. So as they proceeded with the interrogation, Wheelwright's allies in the court started to shout that the clerical party was recreating the worst of Laud's persecutions. And Wheelwright took the opportunity of their support to refuse to answer any further questions. The court backed down, and 
made further proceedings against Wheelwright Public. And when Wheelwright was summoned again, the room was absolutely packed. Now, Wheelwright could defend his sermon with the majority of attendants on his side, ready to loudly oppose those questioning him. At this point, the opposition's best course of action was to show just how extreme the sermon had been by asking each minister in the colony to state whether they walked according to Wheelwright's definition of a covenant of works. And every one of them except Cotton said that they did. If Wheelwright was right, every single minister outside of Boston wasn't just wrong, they were barely even Christian. If Wheelwright was wrong, he had been the person to wrongly accuse every single minister outside of Boston of heresy. So the stakes were extremely high at this point, and the court and ministers spent the next two days privately debating whether or not to pronounce Wheelwright guilty of contempt and sedition. Winthrop and Vane again were leaders of the opposing forces, and after two days, the ministers convinced two magistrates to vote guilty, giving them the majority. The court announced its decision, and Vane tendered his protest. The court refused to note Vane's protest on the record, saying that everything had been done appropriately. In response to the conviction, Boston wrote a new petition, a remonstrance of the court, protesting its action against Wheelwright, and this time, 60 people had signed. The clerical party had won, but they couldn't follow up on their victory. They couldn't effectively sentence Wheelwright, and they couldn't act further against the opinionists. They decided to leave further actions until the next court session, and the only remaining question was whether or not to silence Wheelwright as a preacher in the meantime. And the answer to that question was, there is no possible way that we could get away with that. If Boston residents had thought that a private court session was too reminiscent of life in England, the government silencing a preacher for dissenting opinions silencing a preacher for dissenting views would remove all doubt. Something had to change, though. The opinionists had a disproportionately strong political control of the colony because of the governor and the location of court meetings, and they had the governor they wanted because of the location of court meetings, which was the setting of the colony elections. The people who voted in elections were the people who showed up to Boston for the meetings. So a greater percentage of Bostonians showed up to the elections than people from the surrounding towns, not to mention that Bostonian mobs had shown their willingness to flood court meetings and demand their way, and the local church had decided that it could be a board of revision for any political action the court took. The clerical party had one last order of business before adjourning, and that was to change the location of the next court meeting, a meeting which was also the annual election, to Newtown. Vane knew what they were doing, and he refused to entertain the motion. Now, Winthrop, who supported the move, knew that he couldn't press the issue because he too was a Boston resident. 
his pushing political power away from Boston in order to override Boston's wishes wouldn't go over well. So the person to submit the question was Endicott. And Endicott was the person to declare the vote carried. When the next court session happened, Winthrop and Bain were predictably put forward as opposing candidates. There were tens of people there representing each side. But before the election could begin, Boston submitted another petition. This was a simple appeal regarding Wheelwright's sentence, but it was more importantly an attempt to defeat the election using one of the few tools that they had left, delaying. Boston knew that they were likely to lose this election badly. So they just wanted to keep it from happening as long as possible, and Vane supported their attempt. He was the presiding officer of the meeting, and he insisted on having the paper read. Winthrop, of course, objected, saying that the election must take priority. Vane stood firm, so there was another angry debate, but Winthrop this time had the benefit of location and therefore popular support. So Winthrop proposed a vote on whether or not to read the petition, and the majority voted to proceed with the election without reading it. Now there could be no question of what the election outcome would be. People on both sides gave passionate speeches, and they even got so intense that they started to physically push each other around, and physical violence became a distinct possibility, but the opinionists were distinctly outnumbered and they backed down. Vane still refused to budge, and Winthrop replied that if Vane refused to proceed, the court would simply go on without him. Vane submitted to the inevitable, and the election resulted in the complete and utter defeat of the opinionists, with Vane not only unseated as governor, but left out of the magistracy entirely, along with also left out of the magistracy, were two former magistrates who had been in Wheelwright's congregation at the Mount, William Coddington and William Hugh. For the first time in three years, Winthrop and Dudley were governor and deputy, but this time they were on the same side. And as thanks for his work moving the election to Newtown, Endicott was elected as a lifetime member of the Standing Council, an honor which was only ever given to three people, him, Winthrop, and Dudley. There wasn't one opinionist elected that session, but Boston's freedmen had one last card to play. They'd intentionally deferred their local election of delegates to the new court until after the election, so when Vane, Coddington, and Hugh weren't re-elected, Boston simply chose them as the town's representatives. The court refused to accept the results of the election, saying that two citizens hadn't been notified that the election was taking place, but of course, two votes weren't going to make a difference, so Boston simply held a re-election, which confirmed that Vane, Coddington, and Hugh would be its delegates. The court again delayed sentencing Wheelwright, but when they dismissed him, they told him that he should change his stance if he hoped for a favorable sentence in the future. 
The moderates in the new court, led by Winthrop, hoped that this leniency would contribute to a peaceful resolution of the controversy. Besides, the new court had bigger fish to fry. There was a ship full of people who agreed with Hutchinson and Wheelwright, including some of their relatives, headed to New England at this very moment, and the court needed to minimize the political impact of the ship's arrival. To do this, they passed a law known as the Alien Law, which imposed a 40-pound fine on any individual who allowed a new arrival to stay on his property without the court's permission for more than three weeks. The fine would then be 20 pounds for every month that the offense continued. Towns would also be subject to a 100-pound fine, but any individual who entered his descent with a magistrate, in other words, told the court what was going on, would not be required to pay. When the ship arrived, its passengers stayed in Boston for three weeks before leaving the Bay Colony's borders entirely and moving north to the Pascatoqua River. One of the people turned away was a man named Samuel Hutchinson. So basically, Winthrop's government had prevented the friends and families of Bostonians from settling in Boston because they agreed with Boston's politics. Boston was every bit as furious as you'd expect. Winthrop and Wilson became outcasts in the very town they'd helped to build. The guards who had accompanied Vane when he was governor refused to accompany Winthrop, saying that they had voluntarily guarded Vane because he was a person of quality. This caused enough scandal that other towns offered their own guards until Boston backed down, but Winthrop still had to choose two of his own servants to act as the sergeants. On the Sunday after the election, for the first time since he'd arrived, Vane refused to sit with the magistrates at church, choosing to sit with the deacons instead, and Coddington accompanied him. Winthrop invited them both to come back and sit with the magistrates again, but they refused, and Vane's example was replicated throughout the town. Then, when Wilson was chosen by lot as the chaplain to accompany soldiers in the Pequot War, not one Boston church member agreed to go. They simply would not accompany Wilson into battle. Cotton even considered moving to New Haven. New Haven was the third colony that would one day make up Connecticut, and it was founded at around this time by a group of London merchants who hadn't bothered to get a charter. Its 250 settlers were led by John Davenport and Theophilus Eaton, and it quickly became the most extreme colony in New England. Cotton decided not to relocate for the time being, but Vane decided to return to England along with Lord Lee, the son of the Earl of Marlborough. Vane left Cotton his house, and Cotton lived there for the rest of his life. As Vane went to the boat, his supporters accompanied him with a formal procession of arms, including cannons, and as the barges bearing him sailed away, 
the crowd saluted with repeated volleys of small arms and cannon fire. And when Vane arrived in England, he started helping Sayenseal with the Connecticut settlement. Vane's departure was an irreparable loss to Wheelwright, though, who was now left without any political protection at all. When the Pequot War ended and Wilson returned to Boston in August, Bostonians were even more extreme than they'd been when he left. By this point, they were accusing moderates of being every bit as bad as the extreme anti-opinionists like Peters, and people refused to so much as listen to Wilson preach. A group of Bostonians asked to be made into a permanent militia, but the council refused, saying that a standing military could easily overwhelm the civil government. It was now August of 1638, and Shepard had suggested months before that a synod was the only way to fix the controversy and heal the rifts in the colony, and Cotton tended to agree. Shepard hoped to heal the divisions between people, and Cotton hoped to prove that his theology had nothing to do with the crisis. Now Vane was gone and the war was ended so they could hold the same. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week.